Hey, deserving listeners. It's just me today. I thought I would talk for a while about some questions that some supervisees have been asking me, most notably questions regarding sexual abuse, how, how to approach that when a client reveals that they're uh, experiencing sexual abuse and they're still in the home with the abuser and just all the peripheral issues around that or several peripheral issues around that. And also, I want to talk about existential crises and the meaning of life and, and how to have compassion for those people who have uh, issues like that and, and how to understand it. Because it's something that uh, I find that many clinicians, if they haven't had an existential crisis or they don't have existential uh, issues, they have a hard time relating to people who do have those sorts of issues. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University in Seattle. And I'm also a licensed therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. Sorry about that. If you're listening to this and you're not a patron yet of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron by going to patreon.com. So go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast. You will learn how to gain access to all the premium episodes of which there are many. And also remember that 20% of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. Thank you so much. The first question here is from a supervisee saying that they wanted help. He wanted help with a client who was having an existential struggle and the client was 18 years old and the client was having panic attacks. So uh, I could go on and on about panic attacks and existential struggles, but the, the main thing I just want to say is that, and it's hard to know exactly about the supervisee. I, I have a worksheet that my supervisees fill out, and so I'm just reading some questions that they will ask me at times. And I probably answered this question in person when they came to me, but I just thought I would share it with you guys. Um, existential struggles are, are quite difficult. And if you've had an existential struggle, meaning that you have struggled with the fact that you're going to die one day or whether or not your life has any meaning... Uh, these can be very, very difficult struggles. For some people, uh, they never have these struggles, and God bless them because they never have to struggle with that. <laughs> but if, if and if you're one of those people who has never struggled existentially, then it's sometimes hard, perhaps, to empathize with people who do have the struggle because it it seems as though the person is just worrying too much or. Um, the person just needs to stop thinking about it. So, you know, just stop thinking about the fact that you're going to die. Like, why do you have to think about that all the time? Why do you have to be so morbid? Well, for some people, it's unavoidable. And to some extent, it's a, it's a logical thing to worry about. Because, you know, there's two things that are for sure in life. There's death and there's taxes, right? And so we're all going to die. And none of us, frankly, none of us know what is on the other side of death. And if death has nothing but emptiness on the other side, then that is a very difficult prospect. Even people of faith, priests and ministers, will tell us that that the afterlife is not a for sure thing. Certainly there are some people that will say that, but, but most of the wise uh, theologians that, and ministers that I talk to will say, 
it's faith. You have to believe. And there's no proof that on the other side, there is an afterlife. And so for even those who believe in an afterlife, it's still a leap of faith and, and still uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty. And there's a growing number of atheists, particularly in America and particularly in Seattle, who believe that there is nothing after death. And this is a very uh, daunting and more terrifying and existentially challenging um, notion to to realize and to uh, to feel that anxiety and to feel that struggle is normal and logical in my mind and so if as a therapist or as a friend you have someone who is going through that struggle take it seriously because it is serious it's it's not something that the person is ruminating on it's not something that the person is being unreasonable about it's it's in my mind logical to struggle with it now do are we doomed to struggle our entire life no i think that th- through the struggle and philosophers and others non-philosophers have been struggling with this for thousands of years i mean we can look back at uh, writings that go back thousands of years and see that people have been asking themselves these questions since the beginning of time. And so it's, or the beginning of human history, I should say, but um, I doubt that animals, other animals, dogs and cats think about this, boy, must be, must be wonderful to be them in that respect. But we, we've been struggling with this for a long time and it's normal. And uh, we can, we can, through the continuation of the struggle and through discussing and reading there, there is a, uh, somewhat of a resolution to it for many people. And I've gone down that road with clients before. It's not something you can just tell someone. And I often will find myself saying something uh, like this to my clients. I'll say, well, basically what you're talking about is you're struggling with the purpose of your life. Why are you here? What, what is your purpose here on this planet with, with the time that you are given? And it's a journey of, of meaning exploration. And I encourage you to talk with me about it and to think about it. I, I can't tell you, no one can, what the meaning of your life is. But until you have that meaning, it's going to be hard to feel grounded in anything. You know, for instance, you have someone that is raised uh, to do well in school and their purpose in life is to, is to, or, you know, they're, they're sort of told that their primary mission is to be successful. And so they, they do well in, in high school and they get into a good college and they, they work really hard there. And meanwhile, you know, they're socializing, but you know, they're, they're, they're working hard on a degree. They, they, they start working and uh, they work their way up the ladder. And then they, they get married and they have kids. And then it, they're 40 years old and they start looking at their life and they're, they're, they're at the end of the road to some extent. Or they see the end of the road of the fact that they'll be dead at some point. Or, you know, they see, well, let's see, in 10 years I'll be, uh, I'll have my boss's job. And 10 years after that I'll be higher up on the ladder and what does this all mean and I don't know where I'm going I don't know if I want any of this and so the question becomes well what is the purpose of your life and maybe the purpose of your life is to continue down the path that you're already on but maybe not but until you have that purpose it's hard to feel grounded and it's and you're going to have distress and 
everything, all the struggle that people go through is going to have no meaning. We need to, in order to suffer through the suffering, there, there needs to be meaning in it, or it's much better if there's meaning in it. And there are a million billion different sorts of meanings that people derive out of life. Some people well, you know, the, I think it was the Epicureans had the meaning of life of having pleasure throughout life and not to be hedonistic, but to, to, to have, to, to, to be happy, to be as happy as possible throughout your life. And to, which means potentially bringing joy and happiness and, and healing to other people. So maybe that's the purpose of your life is to, is to be as happy and as, to spread as much joy as you can. And that provides, you know, all the meaning. So as you're suffering through a job that you hate, you know that you're earning money so you can go home and you can have joy in your family. And that provides meaning for you. Or other people, the meaning is to give back to society. Or another meaning is to raise your children well and to give them the life that you didn't have or the life that you want them to have. Or you're dedicated to a larger purpose in society or your art. You want to leave your mark on the planet through your creations and your art, uh, music and poetry, or a podcast for that matter. But you need to have some purpose, or everything feels meaningless, and all the suffering is, is empty. Some people seem to just have that meaning without having to struggle for it, they, they, or they have very short struggles. But some people struggle for it for decades, struggle with it for decades. And as therapists and friends of these people have compassion for it and uh, don't uh, discount it. So that's what I'll say about that. Also, this supervisee was asking about panic attacks. I won't go into that too much. I think I've talked about that before, but that can also be a very difficult thing for people. Okay, let's read, let's read an email. What do you say? Well, deserving listeners, I want to go way back into the archives of emails because I'm trying to read emails that were sent a long time ago that I find to be interesting. Here's one from three years ago from Caitlin in Korea. Caitlin writes, I have been listening to the podcast for a few months now, and I just want to say thank you. My favorite part of the show thus far has been the tougher bluffs uh, section. I like the challenge to think about a situation, idea, factoid, etc., and then the discussion explanation thereafter. I truly appreciate Umberto's consistent inability to properly pronounce random words. I constantly fade back into flashes from the movie Megamind, where the character mispronounces words all the time. <laughs> I love Megamind. That movie is just so funny. Yeah. What, what word does he, does he mispronounce? Oh gosh, I can't remember, but it's, it's, it's hilarious. I may also add that I do the same and am glad to have another fellow mispronunciator out there. Ooh, I like that word, mispronunciator. Keep up the great podcast. Thanks again. Cheers, Caitlin in Korea. Well, that was a nice email. Okay, how about we get to another clinical issue? So here's a really difficult question here from a supervisee. She writes, I would like advice about how to prepare a five-year-old for reunification with her father, who she has disclosed sexual abuse about, but is not being charged with anything and will not admit that he did it. So, again, this difficult question here. Uh, apparently, he, there was a five-year-old, the, the five-year-old client has told the therapist that her father has sexually abused her, 
and uh, but there apparently is not enough evidence to charge him with anything, and so the father is not being charged, and the father doesn't admit that he did it, and now and the the five year old daughter was removed from the home and is now being reunified with the father, and the therapist is saying, "How do I prepare the five year old for this?" Well, this is a extremely difficult question because. On one hand, let's just assume that the abuse has happened, and uh, let's just move forward with that one first. So, assuming that the that the abuse has happened, it's the, the first thing that I tell supervisees to do is to check in with your countertransference and your own healing regarding things like this, and your own realization that you don't have any power in situations like this. For a lot of novice therapists, they come into this field with this notion that they're going to be able to fix things and that they that they are responsible for for a lot more than they actually are and that they have the power to change things that uh, they want to change and so in this situation the therapist probably believes the five-year-old was was indeed sexually abused by her father and would like to protect that child naturally well it we don't have any power over that as therapists we we can influence it to some extent if we put our mind to it and and we have the tools to do so but but we can't control that uh, that was something i realized early in my career and it was a a breaking point for me it was a a loss of innocence shall we say i had a i think i've talked about this client before it's very formative but i i had this this teenage girl client who told me and she had, for the first time, she'd never told, she never told anyone about this before. And she told me that her father had sexually abused her. And so I thought, oh, I'm so glad you told me. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 you, you did the right thing. And I, I, I am the perfect person to tell because I can coordinate all sorts of things to help you out and to advocate for you. And, and I'm so proud of you that you finally came forward with this and you know let's let's save you from this let's there's so many things we can do to help you you know so we call cps together and we get cps involved and the police get involved and i'm thinking okay we're we're really going to help this child out well in the end after cps child protective services and the police did an investigation they they couldn't see there wasn't enough evidence to charge anything and so the it just the whole thing just went away and the child remained in the home and the father was never charged with anything and the char the father was never mandated to therapy or anything and the daughter was left at home with her abusive father and i had a had a had a meltdown <laughs> because not only did I feel responsible for saving this child? Not only did I believe, but not only did I believe that I could actually fix it, but, but this, but I told this, this teenager that I could help her and I couldn't, I told her that I could save her and I failed to do that. And I felt powerless. I felt ashamed of myself. I felt, um, angry. I felt disillusioned by the system and I lost the innocence that I had before that. 
and the innocence before that was that the system works and that the justice system works and that CPS system works and that our society has things in place to protect children from this sort of thing. And this, and our society does, but it's limited in its ability to actually help people. There are many situations, uh, many situations in which the system just fails the, the people. And the thing is, is, you know, it's easy to say, well, whenever there's an allegation, you, you got to act, but people have rights. And this father has, has legal and constitutional rights to a fair process. And if that fair process doesn't pan out, or if that fair process favors the dad in the situation, then, you know, then that's the way that it is. It's not as if the teenager is the only person with rights, you know, the father has rights too. And so I, I can't remember exactly why I, I actually, what I think happened if my, it was, this was like, you know, actually like 20 years ago, but I think the reason why it didn't um, become why the father was never charged with anything was because the allegations were not severe enough. The daughter, her allegations were things like he would walk in the bathroom while she was showering or he would say things that were inappropriate or he would expose her to pornography or it was, it was, it wasn't as if he had sexually touched her in any way. And so, uh, I think that was the, I'm not quite sure, um, what the deal was, but, uh, there are many situations like that where the allegations aren't, uh, strong enough or, the prosecutor just is too busy to pursue something or the father's lawyer is good enough to blah, 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 or the child rescinds their participation in the prosecution. They say, I don't want to talk about this anymore because I'm, I'm too afraid of this whole process. And you know, there's just so many uh, barriers to actually uh, getting someone um, through this process. And, and so I don't, I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, so what I would, tell this supervisee that's asking for advice about how to prepare a five-year-old client uh, girl for reunification with her father, who she has disclosed uh, has sexually abused her and the father is being charged. What, what The first thing I tell people is to just uh, take care of yourself and to realize that you don't have power. You don't have much power in this situation. And it's a good thing we don't have power because that makes us not responsible for something that we would have a difficult time doing. We're, we're therapists, we're healers, we're listeners, we're helpers. We're not social workers. We're not police officers. We're not judges. We're not parents. We're not protectors of people. We're, we're healers and we're listeners and we advocate for people. But, but our, in our job description, it does not say, that we must or will even put any effort into saving people from the world. That is, that is uh, other professionals' jobs. Like I said, we advocate and we set them up with the right professionals, but, but that's not our job. And that's a, that's a critical understanding. And I think as time goes on, we're actually losing sight of that. I, I find myself telling this to all of my supervisees and all of them will tell me, boy, that is not what I'm being told by people at my agency or, you know, other people. I'm being told that it is my responsibility 
because the line between therapist and social worker is becoming much blurrier than it was, I think, in the past. Uh, the, the professional role of a therapist is really quite clear. Our ethics, our training is very clear that we are not social workers and that in the sense that we're not caseworkers. Um, there are plenty of social workers that are therapists, but, but it, we're not, we don't work people's cases. We don't, uh, ha it's not part of our training. It's not part of our expertise and it's not part, it's actually a dual relationship. It, to some extent, you could even say it's, it's unethical to participate in that sort of thing. Because if you, if you start uh, being a case manager of a client and you start actually, uh, doing the job of a case manager, you're, you're not only the therapist and the healer and the listener, but now you're also a case manager and, and that's a dual relationship with a client and therefore potentially conflictual with the treatment and uh, someone else should be doing that. So if you work at an agency where they're pressuring you to do that, uh, really think about that and, and think about how you can push back on that. Now, having said that, you don't want to get fired and, uh, and so sometimes you have to do some case management to keep your job. But um, know that uh, we have more than 100 years of tradition in psychotherapy that uh, tells us that we are uh, not uh, responsible for that and that it's potentially even unethical for us to participate in that activity. Okay, but how to actually work with a five-year-old client uh, as she has to reunify with her father? Well, this is, you know, a difficult, nuanced question uh, and answer, but the, um, a lot of times with children and teens who are forced to be in abusive situations, it's a matter of uh, validating their feelings it's a matter of telling them that it's not them. It's, you know, you tell the five-year-old, and five-year-old, they're pretty young, so it's hard to, you know, with five-year-olds, you tend to do a lot of play therapy and a lot of activity therapy and so, and art therapy and this sort of stuff. So you might have, you're often with five-year-olds, you're working symbolically anyway, meaning you might have puppets that are communicating and these are proxies for the client, the, cl the personality of the client. So the, you might have puppets talking about going into a difficult situation, like, you know, one puppet is being forced by the evil person to go back into the cave of the dragon or something. And you just start uh, helping people cope and helping the five-year-old process those feelings and validating their feelings and um, if the five-year-old is verbal enough and aware enough to talk directly about this, saying, I don't want to move back in with him because of what he did, then you can talk directly about how, to, uh, how the child can advocate for themselves and how they deserve to not be abused. I guess that would be a baseline anyway, is just telling the child, look, if anyone touches you in a way that you don't like, you have a right to say no and to, to tell me about it and to tell others about it. Uh, everyone has the right to uh, their body and their safe zone and, and not being afraid and not being abused. Telling people, because for, for many people, for the vast majority, and in fact, maybe everyone, every young person who is abused, they believe that it's, it's either uh, just normal for people to abuse them or they believe they don't deserve 
to not be abused, especially at five years old. You just don't know what's right and wrong necessarily. And your parents teach you what's right and wrong. And if your parents are abusing you, then you think, well, it must be okay. Everyone must be going through this or no one's going through this because everyone else is a good girl and I'm a bad girl and I deserve this or something. And, you know, it can, so you have to uh, work through that with kids and help them understand that they don't deserve it and that um, they can advocate for themselves. So yeah, that's just off the top of my head. But again, it's very difficult to cope with, cope with that. And, um, you know, you want to get your own, you want to heal from that yourself as a therapist. The other thing, now that I've said all that, is that there's a possibility that the five-year-old is not telling the truth. And as therapists, it's, uh, we, we want to assume that people are telling the truth, particularly when it has to do with abuse, because the vast majority of people who disclose abuse are telling the truth. And when we are suspicious of people, it's a, it's a further abuse of them. You know, and, and it's very typical for uh, when children disclose that they're being abused. It's very typical for people to suspect that they're lying when they're not lying. So we want to be very careful about that. But at least in your mind, you should hold out with the possibility and, and, you know, because in the situation, the father has not admitted it. And unless there's other very compelling evidence that it's happened, which often there is not, you, you just have to hold out with the possibility that the five-year-old is, is lying about it. Now, in all likelihood, you're, you love this five-year-old girl client. You love her very much and you care about her very much and you want to believe her and you're biased to believe her. But you just have to understand that there are many situations. It's a minority of the situations, but there, there are situations where five-year-olds will make up stories for various reasons. And uh, it could have been something that they heard. It could have been something that they saw. It could have been just a, an imagination that they had. They could have been coached into saying that uh, by, particularly in divorce situations, you know, say the, the mom, they say the parents divorce and the mom is very angry at the father and might even be distorted herself as the mother and might start saying, you know, so, uh, so little Jenny, did, did your dad sexually abuse you? And Jenny says, I don't know. What do you mean? Well, did he touch you? Well, yeah, he touched me. And did he touch you? Where did he touch you? And did he touch you here? I don't know. He touched you there, didn't he? Yes, he touched me there. And so there are ways that people can coach and pressure children into making disclosures that aren't true. So as therapists, again, as I've said in other podcasts, it's, it's not up to us to determine the truth. We don't have to find out what actually happened. And we also always need to recognize that we never are, we're very rarely present when bad things happen to our clients. And therefore we can only go off of what they tell us. And we always have to just have in the back of our mind the possibility that everything you think is true is wrong. And that's very distressing for therapists. And it's something that I coach people regarding and help them to let go of the need to know exactly what happened. Because again, you're, you're not there. And um, so you can't confirm or deny anything that any of your clients tell you about what happened outside of the session. This is also true when someone comes in, say it's individual adult, and they're complaining about their spouse. There's no way to know that 
this person even has a spouse. <laughs> I mean, that's one thing, you know, now that it's very unlikely that they're lying to you that they have a spouse, but it's, you're, you're always just going off of their description and just always know that there's a chance, small, albeit, but a chance that everything you think is true is actually not true. So, so if the child is quote unquote lying, then, you know, that provides another area to pursue because if, and there are situations like this, and I've worked with people in this situation where it, it, it was very clear to me that the child was making a false allegation about sexual abuse. And, you know, what do you do with that? Well, it's very complicated. Um, sometimes you just sort of let it go and just move forward with the therapy and, again, try to heal the underpinning reasons as to why the child would have lied about that in the first place. You don't need to shame a child for lying about that. You don't need to yell at them to tell them to stop lying. Usually, um, the reason why they said the lie was for some logical reason that you can get at therapeutically. Um, maybe it has to do with the family. Maybe, you know, there, there's, there's lots of reasons as to why a false allegation like that can be made. And, and, uh, the good thing is, is that oftentimes the treatment for a five-year-old child in a situation like this does not change whether or not it's true or not true. The child, all five-year-old children need to feel secure in their relationships. And if the child lied, then that might be and that might be evidence of an insecure attachment. If the child was sexually abused, then their attachment has been injured. And so for both situations, treating the attachment security is is an objective in the therapy. And so you can sometimes it doesn't matter to the treatment as to whether or not they're lying or telling the truth. So uh, that's just another thing to let go of. Uh, a lot of times what I find is when uh, therapists are hung up on these questions, like, is it true? Is it not true? I say, I ask them, does it change the treatment? Does it actually change what, what the objective is for therapy? And they'll say, huh, now that I think about it, no. Then I'll say, then why do you care if it happened or not? What does it matter? And they'll say, I guess it doesn't matter. And I say, you're, you're very much correct. It doesn't matter if it happened or not. The treatment is the same. So there you go. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself and please take care of other people and demand people to to take care of you because you truly deserve it. (laughs) 